Would you join me by turning to John chapter 8? We're going to look at the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. We come to a a widely problematic text in some ways, not because of its content, but because of its source. The words and message are absolutely beautiful and consistent with what we know and what has been and is revealed about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But you'll see in your Bibles, unless you have a King James Bible, you'll probably see something like you have in the ESV that I preach from, where you have a double bracket beginning in this section that begins and ends, and it says something like this, the early earliest manuscripts did not include chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. Now, this can be quite confusing. Our Bibles include here a story that has become quite famous, and yet it says this. What do we do with that? In fact, this is the story that, well, maybe you've heard the phrase, cast the first stone The woman caught in adultery, that's the story we come to here. Yet there seems good evidence that this story may not have been written by John, but was included here later. Um, The church fathers, very early on in the church, up even as early as 300 AD, started to make comment on this passage, but it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And let me just say this. And I'm, not, I'm just going to move on, and we're going to look into this text. Regarding the manuscripts that brought us the Bible that we have today, the evidence of the authenticity of those manuscripts are consistent and staggering in number. God has preserved his word to us, and it far surpasses the evidence that is ever given to us on other ancient documents that no one ever disputes. But here we come to a passage that Christians have believed truly happened in the life of Jesus. We just don't know at what point this was added into our Bibles. There is nothing in this passage that adds any new doctrine or changes or contradicts anything else in Scripture And in God's providence, he allowed for us to have this story printed in all our modern Bibles. This passage brings out to us glorious truths of God's word taught here and elsewhere. So I want us to look at them and look at this story this morning. We find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus as strong and kind. We see him as mighty and meek. We see him as holy and humble. We see him as tough and also tender. We sing a song here at Faith where it goes, Jesus said that if I thirst Jesus said, if I am weak, if I fear, if I'm lost, 
we can drink from Him. We can come to Him. We can find strength in Him. And He comes to us. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. We find Jesus strong and kind, strong and tough against, and we find him strong and we find him tough and we find him at times quite angry and indignant in certain situations, but here we find him against certain religious leaders. We find him in other passages, like in Matthew 23, where to the Pharisees, to the hypocrites, to these religious leaders who are actually full of self-righteousness, he says, woe to you in Matthew 23, woe to you in scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones, and you are full of all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We saw him already in John in anger clearing out the temple in which they were turning it into a market, and instead it was meant to be a house of prayer. We see Jesus gentle, and lowly, and meek. The only thing he ever says about his own heart, he says in Matthew chapter 11, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. We find in Luke's Gospels, Jesus caring for great sinners who come to him, like in chapter 7, where a sinful woman that everybody knew she had a bad reputation, Jesus doesn't care about that, this woman comes and is crying and washing his feet, and these indignant religious leaders says, Jesus must not be that special because look at who he allows to even touch her or be in his presence And Jesus teaches them on what true love and grace and forgiveness is. We find Jesus over and over again calling tax collectors to him, partying with them, and welcoming them into the love of God. We see in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah when it says that this Messiah a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings us justice to victory. The the analogy there is Jesus, this mighty, triumphing Lord and Savior King will come and he will be so tender to the most weak and vulnerable, a bruised reed that if you just push it the wrong way, it's going to break and be gone and separated. He is going to be so tender, a smoldering wick he will not quench. We find that in this story. Let's look at this story. Uh, You may have heard it called the, the story of the adulterous woman. I want to call it this morning the story where 
where two are left. I want to work through it slowly, bring you out two sides of Jesus. I want you to see his strength and his kindness, his harshness in a sense, or his wisdom, his inability to see through and deal with what needs to be dealt with. And I want to frame it this way. I want you to watch how Jesus, Jesus disturbs the comfortable and he comforts the disturbed. I want you to see how Jesus afflicts the comfortable. He does that. And he comforts the afflicted. And frankly, that's what we need in this church. That's what we need in our own souls. We need where we are wrongly comfortable for him to come and to disturb us. And no, he, we need his grace all of the time comforting us when we are disturbed and bringing us mercy. Let's look at this. We find in verse 1 that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. He was teaching. If you remember in chapter 7, he get, stands up and he says, I, whoever's thirsty, who out there is thirsty, come to me and drink. Now verse 3. The scribes, these are those who know the law of God. They are those that study it. They are lawyers, but not lawyers in the sense we think of it, lawyers of the law of God. They are scrupulous in understanding it. And the Pharisees, a certain group among them, these are people that take pride themselves in obeying every aspect of as much as they can of the Old Testament law, they view themselves as God's special people. They brought a woman, it says, who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, that must be the crowd that Jesus was with, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. These are God's words as we see the heart and life of Jesus Christ. Do you see the trap here? 
See what's going on here? The law of Moses commanded that we stone her. What do you say? There's a trap that these leaders are bringing. These leaders are bad as they use this woman as a pawn. They didn't care about the righteousness of God, and they surely didn't care about mercy and justice. They didn't care about this woman. You see what? They use this woman as they bring this woman in, and they push her in front of Jesus and say, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery. Moses in his law says this, now what do you say? And here Jesus They question Jesus on the punishment, questioning the penalty, and it's a trap. Moses says, Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. doesn't say anything about stoning. The next verse says something about who should get stoned, but usually in these cases, stoning would take place. They're saying, Moses said this in the Old Testament. I think we remember something about how you said you didn't come to change the law, but to fulfill it. But they knew that Jesus, my guess is they knew that Jesus had been preaching a type of grace that seen Jesus before other sinners, allowing them in his presence, and they're thinking, I think we can trap him. What will he do? If you have compassion, you're going to minimize morality. That's not godly, to minimize, make light of God's law and morality. And, And if you judge and have justice, well... It sounds from historical writings, very few people in Jesus' time, women or men, were ever stoned for immorality anymore. It was so it was just happening all of the time. Sexual immorality was so rampant, not just in Roman culture, but even among Jews and adultery, especially in this case, that the Romans didn't usually permit this to take place among the Jewish people. If you have justice, and this is often the the dilemma that we could find ourselves in. If we have justice, you crush people. If you have compassion, you minimize morality. What is Jesus going to do in this, this trap? It says here that they said all of this because they wanted to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. If you remember chapter 7, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to arrest him. They want to take him out. He is inconvenient because he is messing up the established order. He is a problem, and we want him out. So I guess we can catch him one way or another. We have him, they think. But no, they don't. Let's watch Jesus as he disturbs the comfortable. God graciously, Jesus graciously disturbs those of the comfortable. Here are the comfortable, religious, smug. They think they have interpretation. And they have, must have planned and schemed this well. They're comfortable in their wicked sin. This, 
This is a despicable act in which they bring this woman. We get their motives right away. They were not coming with an authentic, heartfelt, grieved over the law of God being violated in the commandment, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And they wanted the holiness of God's people. If so, they would surely not have done it this way. And instead, when we know the motives, they said, we're going to use this woman, this daughter of someone, this wife of someone, and we're going to thrust him at the feet of Jesus, perhaps, among a crowd, with everybody else watching, we're going to shame her, and we're going to use her to get our end, and that is to get a charge successfully against Jesus. Jesus would not fall into their trap. He disturbs the comfortable. Notice what he does. I mean, it's kind of puzzling. We can just sit and think about what does he do. It says they ask him, what do you say? And all we find is that Jesus gets down to the ground and with his finger starts to draw. (laughs) We don't know what he wrote. Some believe that he might have been quoting some prophetic passage from Jeremiah that speaks of this being a false witness. And in reality, he is thinking about how they are falsely adjudicating this. We don't know what he wrote. In fact, John does not intend for us to know, or whoever wrote this, to know what Jesus wrote. We just are intended to know that he stopped, got down, and wrote could be that we are reminded like in the book of Exodus, in the Exodus 32 and 33, that God, the true lawgiver, wrote the law of God with his own finger on the tablets, stone. The law being ultimately fulfilled with loving God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. God is the lawgiver. We don't know exactly what he wrote, we are not, but I think that it infuriated, it made very uncomfortable as they're sitting there, what is he doing? Why is he writing here? What is he, what's going on here? Jesus doesn't respond to them and take the bait and he doesn't say, don't throw a stone. Why would you think about doing that? Why would you do that here? Why don't you show mercy? He doesn't do that. Instead, he convicts the accusers and the prospective witnesses that might have been with them. They're coming and they're saying, we witnesses of seeing that we caught them in the very act. And instead, I believe that Jesus, in his statements, in a sense says, by his questions and his convicting ways says you're disqualified from being witnesses and executioners so why and how when he says let him who is without sin cast the first stone he is not saying that we or anybody else should ever bring any charge against anybody unless we are completely innocent perfect righteous otherwise we could never do any of that but there is a sense in which he is exposing their hypocrisy with that statement. 
I, I want you to ponder this for a minute as, if you think more deeply on what is going on in this passage. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 6 and 7, of which I think Jesus is referring to when he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It says, on the evidence of two witnesses, this is Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the evidences of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidences of one witness because it can never be hearsay. It can never be he said, she said. There must be multiple witnesses because this is a big deal. This is life and death. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. The hand of the witness shall be the first one to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. What was so disqualifying that Jesus saw among these accusers of this woman who are trying to trap Jesus? First of all, I think Jesus knows, and we should probably, if we think more deeply, that it's very likely that these scoundrel scribes and Pharisees, as they're labeled, who bring this woman to Jesus have been involved in some kind of scheme of entrapment. I mean, you needed to have two, at least two witnesses to catch someone in adultery in the very act. It says we caught her in the very act, which means that would be a very difficult thing to do. You need to know and see them doing it or to see that they're about to do that or maybe entrap them and set things up so that you can catch her in the very act, maybe so that she can actually be a pawn for their trap or whatever it may be. But in, in Bible days, both in the Old Testament and even in Jesus' time, it's very hard to convict for adultery for the very fact that it required this kind of evidence. That's why it almost, almost always had to be a setup, an entrapment. But here, if you set something up to tempt a woman so that she could be caught and then convicted because maybe you expected that that's the way she was. Well, that kind of entrapment would be unjust, unloving, ungracious. It would be wrong and that you didn't try to stop the sin from happening and care about the sinner. So there's that problem. Major heart issues going there. There's another is there's partiality issues that are going on of all justice should take place. The question is, where is the man in the story? It takes two to commit adultery. Proverbs 28, 21 says to show partiality is not good. Partiality is showing a type of favoritism of one or the other. We don't find a woman and the man that was committing adultery thrust in front of Jesus. Should we stone them both? Oh, nope, there's only one. There's the woman. She's the easy victim. We're going to go and shame her. We're going to bring her before she's a pawn. We don't care. In fact, in Jesus' day, just like it's been for many, many centuries, where this idea that, well, boys will be boys, and, well, we just expect that to them, and it can be somewhat acceptable but not for women, was true in Jesus' day as well. It was often known that many of these married men would commit adultery and they would get away with it. They would use divorce only for the fact if they saw or hinted or thought that their wife's was, wife was committing adultery, then they would use divorce to get rid of her. 
And then there's this problem of adultery itself. Adultery was so rampant in Israel, according to historical records, that it was hardly ever a capital offense. I already mentioned that. It was too hard to catch people. And so here are hypocritical accusers, probably have seen it happen all of the time, now are being real inconsistent. They're only coming. They've entrapped. They've shown partiality. And they have their own sexual sins that are attached to them. They come. Jesus, first of all, doesn't respond. He brings discomfort to them by just stopping, pausing. Maybe they are starting to feel convicted and overwhelmed by Jesus's not quickly giving them an answer. And then when he says what he says, let the one who without sin cast the first stone. can imagine this. Jesus goes back to start drawing on the ground. And maybe if they were holding stones, stone by stone starts dropping onto the pavement. And one by one, it says, from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they left. All of the witnesses and accusers. No more people there to bring evidence or conviction or condemnation on this woman. You see, Jesus does this, and he still keeps doing this. He, he disturbs the comfortable, and he comforts the disturbed. We'll find in the story that Jesus doesn't accept any blame shifting. There isn't in this story any, he hears her side of the story, and well, it really wasn't that bad. He doesn't deny that she was guilty. In fact, he's going to say to her, go and sin no more, meaning now, now don't sin anymore, meaning you were guilty, but now repent. And this, this passage doesn't say she had a repentant heart. I think that very likely we could Assume that she was come here broken, overwhelmed, had no reason to hope that any mercy or forgiveness would come to her. And she's broken before this teacher, this Jesus. But he says in great comfort to a disturbed, miserable woman, in a sense, you're guilty, but I don't condemn you. You see, the case against her was legally removed. To witness, to con- no witnesses were there to condemn her. But I think Jesus is thinking on a spiritual level as well. Jesus, Jesus died for the ungodly, and Jesus knows he's going to die for the ungodly. He's going to take our punishment of guilty sinners, and they're not condemned. In a sense, I think Jesus is going to say and means, because Jesus throughout this gospel of John is saying, my hour is coming, my hour of being glorified. And he's speaking of the hour in which he is going to go to the cross and bear the sins of of many. I think he's saying, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. You're free. Which is what the message of the gospel says to all those who receive it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's a picture here. Now, I just want to conclude this time by just bringing out three truths to apply to this, this, this beautiful story of Jesus bringing discomfort to the comfortable who had no reason to be comfortable and bringing comfort and, and grace to those who also really didn't have any reason to be comfortable, but in mercy, God, give grace to the lowly. 
So here, here are three. One, one tr- here's number one. It is possible to be on the wrong side of Jesus while holding a Bible and thinking you are morally right. It was true in this story. Here we have them clearly on the wrong side of Jesus as they hold the Old Testament in their hands, in a sense. They think they are morally right in reality. Their motives were so messed up. They did not care about God's holiness, about God's righteousness. They did not care about truth and goodness. They truly didn't care about love. But they come, Moses commanded to stone the adulterer, and we brought you one, they say to you. That's what they say to Jesus. And they think they're on the right side. The Bible says that sin is serious, so we need to let people know how bad it is and not go easy on them. We can think that we're on God's side if we're going to do that. we got to take sin seriously. And we do. But we can so get in a way where we can be on the wrong side of Jesus, holding our Bibles and thinking we're morally right. Jesus was going to say to the scribes in another passage, you hypocrites, you do things like you tithe. And you tithe your, your mint and dill and Human, you, you take your herbs and you even tie those things. And, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should tithe, but he says, but without neglecting these greater things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These accusers, as I said, were not driven by this devotion to God. They weren't driven by true morality or true desire to please God. You see, if we lack grace and forgiveness towards sinners, especially sinners that sin against us or sinners that sin in things that we're we're not very tempted towards anyways, if we lack grace and forgiveness towards sinners, we're moving farther and farther from Jesus all of the time. To condemn and be critical rather than to feel pity and compassion doesn't mean we don't admonish, we don't confront, we don't acknowledge or address certain things. But to have a condemning, critical, not feeling any pity or compassion is moving to the wrong side of Jesus. None of us can ever be more holy than Jesus And he was absolutely holy, sinless. He never, ever made light of sin. And yet he looked broken, dejected, and disgusting sinners in the face, smiled and welcomed them to the Father. And so must we have this mindset. Second thing, that a truth that I want you to see as we reflect on this beautiful story is Christ gives mercy to sexual sinners while calling them to repent of their sins. Not just sexual sinners, all sinners, but I mentioned sexual sinners because it's here in this passage. It wasn't some Sabbath law-breaking that they were bringing. It wasn't some other violation. It was adultery. And I think as Christians, we can sometimes think that There is a special level of transgression of God with sexual sin. I think I grew up this way and growing up in the church in a 
strict Baptist home of which I am so thankful for. I think I grew up thinking if if virginity is lost before marriage or if sexual sin happens or divorce or adultery or sex outside of marriage of any kind, while God still forgives and saves, yes, I knew that, he forgives all, he saves all, there's a type of stain, there's a mark that is upon us that, I guess, weighs upon us, curses us, remains upon us. I, did, we did, I didn't use those words, but I just, just felt like that, that tone, that attitude was seeped into my mind and my heart so easily. And say this story, and God's word makes it very clear that sin is a big deal, and it really matters. It really does. Sin is a big deal, and it f- dishonors and brings disgrace or to his name and is not glorifying to him and he will someday judge all unpardoned sinners. And sin has consequences. Sin has real consequences. Some of the sins, yet God always, to the Christian, uses those consequences not as a stick of getting back at us, but loving discipline for our good in complete devotion for our eternal joy. Jesus gives mercy to sexual sinners in the Bible and in this story. He gives it to those who have sex before marriage, to those who are beat up by the slave master of the sexual sin of lust and pornography, and for those who engage in homosexuality, and to those who have affairs and adultery, He has mercy to all those types of sinners who turn from their sins and look to him for forgiveness. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says, the church is filled with all those former sexual sinners. And some were some of you, but you are washed and you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in this story, we see Jesus gives mercy, and he calls this woman to repentance. He doesn't just say, yeah, no one condemns you. It doesn't matter what you do. It's just your body, your choice. You can do what you want. No, he says, now, no longer go on and continue to sin. I call you to, he calls us to repentance. Jesus calls this woman to repentance. So do we as a Christian, as the Christians, both in our lives, we, we remember that God in his mercy loves to work in, a, in our hearts and in our neighbors and in those around us, displaying his grace and mercy this way. We are sinners and we need to come to God this morning. I call you to repentance. There could be some of you this morning that are sitting in unconfessed sexual sin, other kind of sin besides sexual. I'm just saying it because it's in this passage. And it could be that God wants you this morning to get right with him, to confess your sins. And I'll say, if you've been hiding that, you need to get help and you need to get someone to help you deal with it because you will, you keeping it to yourself will just leave you in a returning pattern of going back into that sin, whether it be a relationship or whether it be pornography or something else. Get help. Look to Jesus Christ and humbly come clean 
And he brings mercy and grace. He shows mercy. He forgives. And oh, may we be a people that does the same thing for one another. He shows mercy. And we find, I I have every reason to think this woman repented and turned away from her sin. The call of repentance to a sinner is a call to turn away from sins. Just like Zacchaeus, who was a dirty, rotten scoundrel who cheated people and was a tax collector, had received mercy by Jesus, Jesus coming to his house, and the change was marked by a change in life. As he showed fruits of repentance, he quit sinning and he gave to the poor and restored what he had stolen. So if Jesus disturbs the comfortable who shouldn't be comfortable... He comforts the disturbed because of his great mercy. Let me just finish with the number three. Only one kind of comfort is worth, worthy, is a typo that I had, is worth having, and it comes from Jesus. Let me say it again. Only one kind of comfort is worth having, and it comes from Jesus. Oh, we look all over the We look for sex to bring us comfort. We bring for relationship to bring us comfort. We look to identity and work and money and all kinds of things all our life. We look for things to bring us comfort. Only one kind of comfort It's the comfort that Jesus brings. This com- comfort comes from having our sins exposed. Jesus will comfort you, brother and sister, sometimes. And the way he's going to comfort you is by first exposing your sin so that you can deal with it and find true comfort in his mercy and grace. And we come to him and we receive what he offers. And we come to him without any excuses or deceit. We come to him for forgiving mercy and he gives restoring fellowship. Like what sin kind of grace. Now, I want to end with two are left in this story. I love this idea. We, we find in verse 9, it says that when they heard it, when he had said, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Jesus. And Jesus said to him, to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Saint Augustine of Hippo, he's from the 300s, just 300 years, 250 years after Jesus. He writes these these words in Latin. I'm not even going to try to say them because I just mess it up so much. In this Latin phrase, he describes what happens here. And in English, they're, they're translated this. Two were left, misery and mercy. Two were left, misery and mercy. The wretched and the merciful. In this story, the women accusers leave her alone as they are convicted and silenced and sent out. And here we find a woman full of misery. I mean, can you just think of the misery? She, she's caught. She's guilty. She's alone. She's being embarrassed. She's shamed. It's over. She comes and she's thrust by Jesus' feet 
And she comes before the one who's full of mercy. This crowd of men is accusing she's guilty. And she comes. And with Jesus there, that's enough. Is a place we all must find ourselves if we will ever enter the kingdom of God. Have you found yourself at a place that Jesus is before you, the true Jesus? The true Jesus will be before you someday, and he will judge you. He will be the great judge. This Jesus, who made the world and the word of God, are you before Jesus? And we need to come, and it must be as though two are left. You? Wretched, unhappy, and condemned rightfully in your own sins. Miserable and convicted. How can I stand before God? How can I continue? Who am I? And yet mercy. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. He has the power to forgive sins. He made it possible at the cost of his life to forgive all your sins. He welcomes you. It is as though today, whether it be for the first time or as God convicts you of sins, it is as though he wants to say, there are two left, the miserable and the merciful, if you're going to receive my grace. Will you see yourself as miserable so that you can receive my mercy and find grace? I will give it to you. Have you come to him? Will you do so this morning? Let's pray. Father, Oh God, cleanse us, restore us, bless us, heal us. Oh God, I pray that we would find ourselves, because of your grace, the most caring, merciful, loving, gracious people. We know how you treated us. Help us to treat others that way. Oh God, I pray for young and old, for those that a story like this might stir up memories of past sins, from decades and decades ago or just recently. Oh God, I pray that all comfort would come as they just remember that though wretched and miserable, I'm present with the merciful and that's enough. Thank you for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, oh God, I pray that you would help us to be the kinds of people, whether that be to our family, to our neighbors, to our friends, and to our coworkers, while we, like Jesus, believe in truth and call people to repentance that's in Jesus, we show the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.